Forum. We're going to do an interview with Eric John Phelps, author and pastor and teacher, and uh, we'll hope you join with him here in just a minute. Hey, Sean, how you doing, brother? Hey, how you doing, brother? Is it a good time now, or I don't know if you're, I know yep. you're busy? Yep, now it's good. Okay. Well, I just wanted to get back with you again. Um, I kind of have everything set up, and we left off last time we were discussing the kind of convoluted topic of how America went from a, a constitutional republic to this kind of international global empire that's whose strings are being pulled by the international elite forces in Europe, the aristocracy and, and the various uh, power players that have bought their way into uh, Washington, D.C. And I wanted to hear more about your perspective on that as far as March 9th, 1933 and, and so on. I have as much time as you want to talk to yourself. Okay. Um, well, number one, we can't understand anything. Unless we, unless we are aware of the dialectic between and the Counter-Reformation. Everything fits that model. Nothing is outside of it. Right? So, when you have the founding of America, that's a result of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. The Puritans coming here, escaping the persecution of the papacy, as well as the Anglican Church, run by the Jesuits. And uh, <clears throat> then you have the beginning of the colonies that were all white, Protestant, and Baptist. There were no Roman Catholics except at the time of the Revolution, there were 30,000 Roman Catholics in this country and 24 priests. That's all. And that's according to Jeremiah Crowley in his book, Romanism, a Menace to the Nation, pardon me, written in 1912. And he was a priest who got saved and began to be an evangelist to the Roman Catholics of New York City. Yeah, so it so, seems to me that over the course of time, the, 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 the influence of Europe and of, of, of Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, and it's more of a, the, the, not the religious side of it as much as the, the imperial and the political side of control that the, the Vatican seeks to get with nations through diplomacy yeah. and other things. You're talking about the temporal power. Always refer to that as such. There is no other church, quote-unquote, that propounds the doctrine of the temporal power that we have the right to rule nations. It's only and exclusively papist. And so, as I mentioned before, it's a silver key on the, on the Pope's flag that represents this temporal power. It's the same key in the NSA. When you go to NSA headquarters, they got an eagle clutching a silver key. And they'll tell you that's the power of Peter to bind and loose. That's the temporal power. So, when we, when we begin to study this history, we study it with the key of Reformation versus Counter-Reformation. The Bible in the hands of the common man in his own language versus the Bible not in the hands of the common language and without from him. Well, that's, that's fascinating as far as the key also is if you go back into uh, into Rome as far as ancient Rome 
uh, the paganism and the, the, the various gods of Rome, that the, the goddess Cardia was the the goddess of the, the hinge, or the goddess who would allow the, the door of the heavens to be opened, and that the there was keys that were involved. And this goes back to the keys of Janus. This goes back to uh, centuries before the the arrival of uh, of the, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and this, this is the Roman system of paganism. Um, and idol worship that was established long ago. So these keys that were in play that you're talking about were on the flag of the papacy represent uh, a kind of primitive uh, idol worship also that existed before the time of Peter and even of Christ. Of course. course. If you get my my, uh, first PowerPoint, 2002 that I made up, I I have 733 slides, something like that, in that PowerPoint. And I show you it goes all the way from Babylon to... Persia, through Greece, through um, through Rome, it's the, it's the mystery Babylon religion of Nimrod, and it's, and it's in every pagan empire, and it just is under another name now. It's called Roman Catholicism. When when the Roman Empire ended in 476 in the West and in the East, 1453. <laughs> The, the empire took on another cloak in 476 when Gratian, Emperor Gratian, decided he doesn't want to be emperor, and he gave his the, the Pontius Maximus title to the Bishop of Rome. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the beginning of the devil building the, the super bishop of Rome, and you have also um, a focus who's the emperor of Constantinople, because remember, Constantine moves the capital in 330 to Constantinople in the east. And that's the beginning of the pope being called the bishop of bishops. Right. And what he calls the bishop of bishops, that means he's the supreme of all bishops, and there was the bishop of Constantinople, the bishop of Alexandria, and a couple other places. There were five of them. But to call himself supreme, all the other bishops denounced him for that. But this is the devil taking the bishop of Rome and making him a Roman Caesar. Mm-hmm. And this all starts with really Constantine. Okay? When Constantine, used, used by the day, was no Christian. He believed in baptismal regeneration, work salvation, of the day he died. It was a sun worshiper. Constantine was the one who uh, really begins to build the Roman papacy. Yeah, it it's seems to me that. Up. Yes, sir. It, it seems to me that uh, in some ways that Constantine was really the first technical pope uh, in, in, in so many ways, and it, it seems like that the title Vicarius Christi, by which the pope is called the Vicar of Christ, that he he by, actually Vicarius Belli Day. Yeah, yeah. But it seemed like that that term, that uh, that uh, name, began with Constantine, also. And um, you know, it, it seems to me that this, the whole uh, extension of the, the 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 title Pontifex Maximus begins with Julius Caesar, who actually he he takes it up. It was something that was bequeathed to Rome. Uh, into the Senate, into the government of Rome, from Attalus II, and ultimately it was a title of the high priest. Well, I was pointing out that this title, Pontifex Maximus, um, has to do with the the Babylonian cult, like we're describing the mystery religion. That's the name of blasphemy of these seven kings in Revelation 17. Pontifus Maximus is the name of blasphemy because he's attributing deity to himself. 
the supreme pontiff. Right. So, so Pontifus Maximus, as you said, goes back to Rome, and um, the, the well, ultimately Julius Caesar. He is going to be the first, really, the first dictator, the first imperator to break the the Roman Senate. So there was no longer really technically a democracy, and he would be the first uh, Caesar, the first uh, emperor. And this this throne of power that he was establishing, that was established by Julius Caesar, would be passed down to Augustus, and it would, and the whole line of succession of emperors would continue. Uh, the tyranny of that would continue on, and the, and the Roman Republic would never be restored. So that's well, I, I, I think well, of the. the well, let, me, let me help you with this. Let yes, me help you. Julius Caesar was nothing compared to Augustus. Augustus was the first Caesar. He's, he's the one that crosses the Rubicon, mm -hmm. and he's the one that converts the Republic into a de facto empire. And he is regarded as the first Caesar, the right. first emperor, okay? Julius Caesar was just a, a, a beginnings of it. Right. He was no real Caesar. Well, he was, he was murdered in, in, before he could probably really step into it, I imagine. That's correct. So therefore, but it, he, he, he lays the groundwork for it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, you have uh, you have Augustus being because Caesar and uh, and uh, that uh, whore in Egypt. What was her name? Uh, oh, Cleopatra uh, was it? Uh, they have a son together, and they want to make him like a Superman, but he dies too because right. Mark Antony kills Cleopatra and he kills her son. She, she didn't have. She wasn't bitten by any snake. Right. He, he killed her, and then after that, he becomes the most important sea battle at that time ever. One of the most important is called the Battle of Actium, mm -hmm. thirty-one, and that's when the when the Romans defeated the Egyptians and and, and uh, Cleopatra. And then Mark Antony goes down and he kills Cleopatra, and also the son that they have that Julius Caesar had with her. So he then. Is then from there he goes on to as as pardon me Octavian. Mm -hmm. Octavian becomes Augustus Caesar, right. and so now this is the beginning of the big empire, the Roman Empire, where the Republic in fact now becomes an empire. It's a it's a de facto empire, but it's still a Republican form. Well, so, the reason why I, I bring it up too is I liken it to the same situation we are in America, where we have the quorum of our Senate, and ultimately, over the course of time, the the balance of the democracy and the checks and balances of our government, the constitutional government, were broken by the imposition of the executive branch with these war powers, these emergency war powers, to create executive orders, and that's how we're in this entire situation, from my point of view. That's correct. Remember that executive orders proceed from proclamations. There are no executive orders apart from a previously issued proclamation. The most important proclamations are the March Proclamation 2039 of March 6, 1933, when FDR declared a state of national banking emergency, state of war, premised upon Section 5B of the Trading with the Enemy Act. Okay, of 1917. Public Act of October 6, 1917. He never says trading with the enemy act, but that's the act. Right. Well, he uses the trading with the enemy act in an evil way to justify his imposition of military government. Mm -hmm. 
does that. He seizes all legal property, all property title to the people here, but it's not law yet. And so it's a banking banking holiday from Monday to Thursday, the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th. And on the 9th, Congress approves and confirms the proclamations of FDR going back to the day he was inaugurated, namely March 4th. And this is for the Secretary of Treasury, too. Because now the President, as Commander-in-Chief and Secretary of Treasury, are the two most powerful people in the country. Right, and this is the time that they call the banking holiday. When it was- this is the banking holiday. It's a four-day banking holiday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. On Thursday was the ninth. So Congress convenes. Uh, at the behest of FDR, because FDR put out a an executive, uh, let me see, uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, Proclamation 2038, demanding that the Congress meet in the emergency session on the 9th, March 9th, 1933, which would be Thursday. So then on Monday, he issues Proclamation 2039. And this, this is Roman proclamations, okay? And he's basing them out of Trading with the Enemy Act. Now, I want to go back a little bit and tell you that the Trading with the Enemy Act was okay during World War One. It was a law that was enacted to, to regulate the trade between American citizens and American business between those who were enemies during World War One, right. namely Germany, Italy, Austria, and so on. So they never repealed it. They should have repealed it. But from 1930 to ni- from 1918, and when 1918 they amended it and they put the word hoarding in there. So from 1918 to 1930, they amended Trading with the Enemy Act 14 times. What for? Because they're preparing it for March 9th, 1933. They last amended it in 1930. And the depression is growing. And so uh, and on March 9th, 1933, the Trading with the Enemy Act is amended for the 15th time when they amend Section 5B so as to eliminate a phrase in there that limits the act to only transactions between Americans and foreign enemies. They eliminated that limitation, so now that the the military government, uh, there's no uh, limitations on all domestic transactions. They can all be monitored now through Trading with the Enemy Act, as amended by the Emergency Banking Relief Act. Well, this is kind of what they mean when they say a technocracy. So at this point, they can use their ability to track and monitor people. And it reminds me that the CIA was supposed to have protections that meant that it could only operate outside the United States against foreign actors. But over the course of time, I mean, I I don't have all the particulars, but you can see that over the course of time, it seems that those limitations are are slowly being curved and that they they have their apparatus uh, focused more and more on the American people and the protection is not there. It's always been on the American people. All they need to do is operate domestically is have the permission from the state governments. Permission from the sheriff to come into the county. What sheriff's going to stand against them? Right. So that's all they need. If they if the sheriff goes against them, they'll kill them like they did that sheriff down in Waco when they beat him to death with a baseball bat. So with that Waco thing they pulled. So anyway, um, back to back to this foundation. You've got to have this clear in your mind, John. Proclamation twenty thirty nine was Monday. FDR declares a state of national banking emergency, which the Congress says is equal to a state of war. And he invokes this out of the war powers 
of the Trading with the Enemy Act. Remember, Trading with the Enemy Act was passed out of yeah. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 of the, of the legislative power of the Congress in Article 1. And that simply means that in that Article 11, it says Congress shall have power to declare war. So that's called a war powers provision. So out of that war powers provision, they initially passed the Trading with the Enemy Act in 1917, but they never repealed it, never and then they used, they used it as a basis for Proclamation 2039 and 2040. So, Trading with the Enemy Act, is the, the, the use of it is the foundation for all this wickedness. So we have now on Thursday, the Congress gets together, and they are going to pass the Emergency Banking Relief Act Sight unseen, nobody has a copy, and nobody knows who wrote it. Well, at this point, the American people are at the point of famine and starvation. And the, it looks like they're, the currency is in the government, and the nation is completely and totally bankrupt. And it, it's interesting. No, 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 government's not bankrupt. Nope. What's happened is they've orchestrated the crash. Number two thing caused the crash. First thing caused the crash is the Federal Reserve withdrew 40% of all credit in circulation. That's the first thing to happen. Right. Second thing was Joe Kennedy sells short on the stock market. That Irish Catholic. So the Jews didn't cause this. It was the Catholics that caused this. So, so, so Joe, Joe Kennedy, Kennedy is, is going to be the father of, of John F. Kennedy, the famous president who was assassinated. That's correct. Joe Kennedy's an out of Malta. And he's a very rich man, and when he decides to turn the market at that point, it's decisive. That's right. He's a chief, you can read about this in the book called FDR, My Manipulated Father-in-Law by Curtis Dahl, D-A-L-L. He tells you everything. He tells you the whole terrible story. There were three short sellers, and Joe Kennedy was a chief. So that FDR sent him to England as ambassador in the court of St. James. Right. So, anyway, we have this, the crash, and then well, we're going to have a solution. Order out of chaos. Good old 32nd degree Freemason FDR, overseen by Jesuit Edmund A. Walsh from Georgetown. He is going to, then he's going to sign Proclamation 2040 after Congress passes the Emergency Banking Relief Act after 38 minutes of debate. Right. And it cannot be amended. So then when FDR does that, the Emergency Banking Relief Act approves and confirms every proclamation of the President, Secretary of Treasury, going back to March 4th. So that means FDR says, all right, now I'm going to... FDR puts forth Proclamation 2040 and says, well, since you've already... Since I put my Proclamation 2039 up on Monday, March 6th, and now Congress has approved and confirmed all my proclamations since March 4th, I'm continuing now Proclamation 2039 until other such proclamation terminates it. So that's what we've been under. We've been under emergency war powers, military government since March 9th, 1933, when the Congress approved and confirmed those proclamations. That is the benchmark of American history. So at this point, the, the commander-in-chief in the executive branch has this this uh, unparalleled absolute power to dictate law that's unaccountable. That's just, so that, that's what I'm interested in here. It, can okay. I, yeah. okay, we're there now. We've laid the foundation. You don't know this foundation. Your enemies will confuse you. So you keep those facts close to your heart and don't compromise them because they are irrefutable. 
So we go on. Now that FDR's commander in chief, Congress has already on January 23rd, 1933, before FDR is inaugurated on March 4th, Congress has already passed and the states have already approved of the 20th Amendment. And the 20th Amendment is for January 20th. That's how you remember it. 20th Amendment for January 20th when they changed the inauguration date from March 4th to January 20th. Right. Why? Because they're inaugurating the commander-in-chief now, not the president. And that's why they always play hail to the chief. The last president to be inaugurated on May 4th 1933 was FDR, and every one of his terms after that, his next three terms and all the other presidents, are been inaugurated on January 20th. Because they're all commander-in-chiefs operating under emergency war powers proclamations. Mm -hmm. And that's, that has de facto suspended, that has, that has ousted the constitutional government, the civilian constitutional government that we had before. You with me so far? Yep. All right. Okay, so now what ha the this is in Berkheimer's military government and martial law. Mil Berkheimer tells us that when military government is imposed, the civilian government is temporarily ousted. And Berkheimer wrote this in 1912. Military government and martial law. So, books divided into two halves. Well, first half is military government, the second half is martial law. And the jurisdiction for both is military jurisdiction. Yeah, so that's why when they impose martial law, the courts aren't changing the flags, no proceedings are changing. We've already been in a military government for almost 80 years. Eight, what is it? 80 years, 89 years, something like that, 33 to 22. 89 years. So, it's not changing. So, anyway, what happens is now. We've been under emergency war powers, military government. And with that, the last war we will, and then he, as soon as he does that, he starts exactly what Rome did. He spends $500 million to spend the country out of debt, out of its depression. In the meantime, he sent, puts out Executive Order 6102 on April 5th, 1933. And that executive order proceeds from Proclamation 2040. And so with that executive order, he demands every person, individual, partnership, corporation, or association, must turn in all gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates by Communist May 1st day. Are you not allowed to be a hoarder of the coins? You have to turn them in? That's right. They called you a hoarder under Trading with the Enemy Act, Section 5B, and now you have to turn them in, nigga. Okay? Now, so that's I, how they... I, I, I'm curious, too. At this point in history, too, right when this is happening, this is when we're going to find that at this point they're going to issue social security numbers. Okay, birth, hold it. Just yeah. let me get there. Okay. Just ask me about it. Try not to jump forward. Try to stay very foundational, this point, this point, this point, because when you do that, you will be irrefutable. Okay, and I want you to win every debate you're in. So now, they, he, in March, on April 5th, he puts out Executive Order 6102 and demands the turning of all the gold by my Communist May 1st day. So everybody turns in their gold, for the most part. 
And or they just with, go and collect it out of the bank vaults, and they have authority from the federal government just to take take it all from the banks, right? They're just seizing that's, it all. That's right. Anybody who doesn't turn in their gold, it's a 10-year 10, 10 prison sentence or a $10,000 fine. So this is called Jesuit grand theft. So now we have uh, that's in place by May 1st. A month later, Congress passes a House Joint Resolution 192 that's now been codified in 31 U.S.C. 463 that all payments in gold now are against public policy. Public policy means the policy of the military government. Because the public has changed. The public is no longer we the people. The public is the conquered people. Enemy belligerents. And because they're enemy belligerents under Training with the Enemy Act, all their property is deemed to be enemy property. And if the sense is deemed to be enemy property, it is now under the oversight of the Secretary of Treasury. Because he's responsible as the alien property custodian on the Secretary of Treasury for the management and administration of all property of every person, place, and thing in this country. Well, it's the same the same policy now. I mean, if you go to the IRS and try to pay your taxes with gold, they won't accept it. You'll have to go and turn it into Federal Reserve notes and come back, right? No. They'll accept it because I tried to do it with the state boys here. I tried it with the state. I gave him $600 of silver face coin. They said, okay. Mr. Phelps, we're not going to accept this. Right. They sent it back to me. And they said, and if you wanted to credit your tax bill for $600, we'll take it. Right. That's what the feds will do, too. We'll take it face value. But anyway, the point being is that when that happened with HGR 192 on June 5th in, the, in Roosevelt, the great communist Masonic Jesuit-controlled sinner that he was who died of syphilis, and he never had polio. It was syphilis. What we have here is uh, the bankruptcy of the military government. The civilian government is not bankrupt. Right, I got That's you. Been the military government is bankrupted and has been bankrupt since June 6, 1933, because when they said can't pay in gold anymore, that bankrupted the military government, and it bankrupted every state military government, too, because remember, the states imposed military government at the same time that the feds did. Right? That's why you have the military color flying in every state court. Every one of them. So, when this goes into place, then now, now they have their de facto American empire where they can begin to wage war around the world for the benefit of the Pope. And no war has ever been fought by any American since 1933 that's for the benefit of America. It's for the benefit of Rome and for the destruction of the historic white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Baptist peoples of America. That's the only reason for these wars. So it's incumbent upon them in order to maintain control in the system to keep putting in place men that they can use who are uh, going to adhere to whatever, you know, I, I, it's easy to see with Clinton. He seems like he, he was obviously a puppet. Um and he turned out to be such a, a, a perverted and kind of sick individual. Ultimately, you know, it's 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 interesting. Well, that, uh, well brother, what do you expect? He went to Georgetown for four years. He was a class president in the senior class. They loved him. And Bill Clinton is a very barely erudite, intelligent man. He's the son of George Herbert Walker Bush. 
And I was told that by a CIA officer who came to take my class. His name was Philip Redman. And he was a Delta Force down at the, 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 there's a state down there in Texas. And he overheard Barbara Bush say, well, what are you getting Bill for his birthday? <laughs> and, and Bill, the senior Bush said, well, I don't know. And she said, well, you should. He's your son. Bill Clinton is the son of George Herbert Walker Bush. And that's why they did all these things together. And that's why George W. is bosom buddies with Bill Clinton because they're half brothers. So this entire apparatus, I mean, it's interesting uh, that you bring that up. I, I'm curious, too, that uh, Obama was ultimately his mother was really all over the place. And you're going back you know, in the past as far as a woman, an American woman who she's a white woman and she's living in Nigeria and she's living in South America and Peru. And she, she seems like she's just all over the place. It seems like she's really just a, a CIA asset that she's her father, was a, her father was in the CIA. Right. And so and she went to a Jesuit school in Beirut, Lebanon. So she was completely used by the company. And she would be the one, the broodmare, to give birth to this mulatto, Barry Davis. His father's Frank Marshall Davis. I don't care what anybody says. Mm -hmm. Frank Marshall Davis tutored him for 10 years when he was 8 years old to 18 in Hawaii. So he was a communist. He was a notable communist. Right. Absolutely right. There was a 600-page dossier on him with the FBI. But nothing happens. Because, because uh, so you have the CIA, you have uh, the CIA with Stanley Ann Dunham's father, and the FBI with uh, J. Edgar Hoover working with Frank Marshall Davis, because the FBI has always facilitated the communist movement. They have been openly against it, but secretly facilitated. That's why they backed J Martin Lucifer King at the Highlander School in Tennessee. So they're all working together and William F. Buckley said in the 1980s, we're going to have to have a black president. I document this all in my PowerPoint. It was Nida Malta, William F. Buckley, Kennedy assassin, involved in the cover-up. They're promoting having a, a black president or mulatto president, but it would be completely and totally controlled by the white power structure. And that's Obama. CIA put him in office. Yeah, I mean, they're they're inseparable from the Clintons, and and despite whatever their their racial characteristics might be, they're obviously uh, absolutely just another enforcer for the the deep state power structure there. I mean, we were talking about the the January sixth uh, defendants that are in Washington uh, in the dungeon there now, in the uh, the Washington. Uh, they are basically pre-trial status at this point. They haven't seen a judge, and it doesn't look like they're going to. Remember, under NDAA. They can arrest you and hold you as long as they want to without charging you with a crime. The moment they charge you, you have rights. So they haven't charged them with anything. They can hold them as long as they want to. Right. Where was NDAA written? Georgetown University. It's like the Patriot Act. The Jesuits at Georgetown write all the leading legislation, use their agents to introduce it into the West, into the Oval Office, and from there it goes to the Hill to be passed. Yep, I think that you're absolutely right. Um, now, as we're looking at the situation here in America, they're they're moving pretty hard in the Pentagon with this this critical race theory and introducing it, and they're pushing you know the vaccines. All all the troops have to be vaccinated. Well, that's, well, that's called critical race theory. What it really is, it's criticizing the white race theory. 
That's what it is. Well, it looks like to me it's just a new KKK for, for black people. It's a new black clan. That's correct, but it's more than that. It's the entire government. It's the entire military government. Why is the post-military government doing this to the white people of North America? Because the white people of North America are either apostate Protestants, heretic Protestants, or liberal Roman Catholics. And they're both condemned by the Jesuit orders, Council of Trent, and the Oath of the Fourth Vow. Right. So there you get to it. Now, I was thinking about liberal Catholics here in the United States, and I, I like to occasionally listen to the Steve Bannon War Room podcast, and he, he has interesting information. But he seems like he, for, for what he sounds like, there's no telling what he really thinks, obviously, but for what he sounds like, he sounds like he's a, a Catholic man, but he's also a nationalist, so that he, he takes positions against the, the the doctrine and 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 the and the policies of the Vatican and the papacy and he openly criticizes the Pope. So in that in that case, he's a liberal Catholic. He's a Catholic. No, who, no, Steve Bannon is a punk. He is a conspirator. He is the new right. He's part of the Catholics creating the new right, and he is completely in the pocket of the Jesuit order. Totally, just like Trump. Just like that other guy, what was his name? He's got Nixon tattooed on his back. What's his name? Uh, oh, Roger Stone. Roger Stone. They're all <laughs> a bunch of right, new right. I shouldn't even know that. Yeah. But no, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think I can see that they're trying to work, but they're, they're, they're the opposition, they're controlled opposition. They're trying to work the red and the blue dialectic and between the people. And they're trying to make sure that there are grievances all around. And, the white um, people. They're going to give the grievances to white people. It's not grievances for the black people. That's all nonsense. They they are number one. It's been a pro-black, anti-white government since the '60s, and I lived through it. If you, when I was going to high school, we were all ashamed that we were white. All we ever did was persecute the Indians and and beat the black men and rape the black women. That's that crap that they started with in the 60s, and they continue it to this day, and there's not a word of truth in it. Yeah, it's it's All not beating down the white man. Yeah, I think also as we're looking at, it, they introduced at that time this whole um, environmental theory and the, the greenhouse gas. Uh, situation where we, we had to look at the world as uh, we were running, you know, I guess at that time we were going to go into a global cooling and then eventually they changed it to global warming, but they wanted to have this policy that was coming through the, the United Nations of uh, 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 controlling the resources and the environment. And, and, and so the, the Pope's United Nations, that conspiratorial, wicked operation that was created because of the airborne nuclear war hoax, period. And they created it in New York with Jesuit Rockefeller financing the building. There's one thing John Burst decided was right, giving it to the UN. Yeah. But, but it's that. a total subversive operation to give up your sovereignty a piece at a time for some big central uh, UN where the Pope has a special seat in it, and so does the Grand Master of the Knights of Malta. He has a special seat at the UN. Right. Yeah, no, it's. I think the United Nations. How do you get rid of that? I mean, it's just an organization uh, that you could you could make a, a a bridge club to play cards, and you could ultimately have a, a United Nations organization. And, and and it looks like Rockefeller just gave up some prime real estate there, and just and, and they and was he a Knight of Malta? Also, is that part yes, of? Yes, he was. Yes, he was, and he was completely controlled by Francis Cardinal Spellman. Spellman was the king. 
the Lord of New York City. Every Archbishop of New York City is the king of New York City, and nothing goes down without his approval or him causing it. Nothing. That's why he rules the Council on Foreign Relations out of New York City. It seems like the entire state at this point has fallen to this this new uh, medical biosecurity state. And, you know, I, I don't know. People are fleeing there. It looks like to me that people are trying to get out of there as fast as possible. But the entire state has become this, uh, they, they call it the Empire State. And it looks like it's totally controlled by the, these these uh, elite banking masters or whatever. They, they, it's, oh, the, ban it's, the banking masters are all Knights of Malta. So you just start calling the Roman Catholic Knights of Malta because that's who they are. I don't care who they are. There used to be Larkin and there's a host of them. They're all Knights of Malta. They all run the banking system. They control the credit and they're working on these their commercial banks with the Secretary of Treasury and the Federal Reserve. The Knights run all finance in this country. So don't just call them the banking lords, whatever. Call them who they are, the Knights of Malta. Yeah, I have a whole list of them that was the head of the Federal Reserve. It's Peter G. Peterson, he was the Knight of Malta, the Blackstone Group. He was the head of the New York Federal Reserve for years. All the papal knights. Well, you had pointed out one time when I was listening to your broadcast about the the Al uh, the Al Smith dinner, and I, and I always sometimes I watch the debate that they have with uh, Hillary Clinton and and Trump there. And it, it, no matter what happens, the the candidates have to go in front of this, in front of this. The, and I'm sure there's plenty of Knights of Malta there, and you can see that they're the 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 most powerful individuals that there are in the world, and and there they are. And I there guess there they are. There they are. It's the feet of the Archbishop of New York City. And so both candidates have to kiss the ring. And uh, that's right. Remember, the Archbishop of New York City is the most powerful prince of the Church in America. He's the most powerful. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, as far as um, where we're at here, uh, how are you? What's your perspective on this vaccination? People are saying that it's going to come with some surprises in it, maybe some identification and stuff. I mean, of course, at this point, it's conspiracy theory. But as we move forward in time, it, it might come turn out to okay. be perfectly okay. true. Okay. First of all, there's no such thing as conspiracy theory, so please don't use that term. Well, it takes it takes about a year for it to go from the fringe to become headlines. And that's but, 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 this, but it's entirely a conspiracy from beginning to end. And remember this, it's the CIA that coined the term conspiracy theory. Yeah, no one's allowed to think outside that box. Nobody, but the moment you start to advocate, well, maybe some people are working together for mm -hmm. this. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, that's the only way you understand history. You think wars just happened? Huh? You think the Great Depression just happened? You think you think God in Vietnam just just happened? I mean, if you deny a group of men working in conjunction with each other to cause events, then you're crazy. You're insane, and you don't have any right to be free. You should just be a slave and do what your master tells you to do. Conspiracy is the heart and font of of of, of, of politics and of history provable for the last 500 years. Absolutely. So anybody that doesn't believe in a conspiracy, I, I always say to them, oh, well, are you a coincidence theorist? Uh, tell me, give me some facts to prove your coincidence. They can't do it. But I can give a thousand of them to prove conspiracy, and I give all their theology and their doctrines and everything else to prove that they are doing exactly what they said they would do. Now, it's interesting, um, 
always go back and, and look at Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope, and it's it's a really it's a large book. It's fascinating, and in that book, I remember when I was reading it, he had some some he describes some monstrous like technological advancements that are in secret, uh, scientific uh, advancements that there are going to be developed. And at the time when I read it, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I, I thought that he must have just been off his rocker. But now as we're, we're going down the line here, it becomes apparent that it seems like that uh, the black book operations, there, there are secret programs that, that house some of these um, I, I guess it's hard as far as Project Bluebeam, and uh, it looks like that the, the government or uh, the, the secret projects have advanced technology that were were kind of being slowly fed uh, over time. I don't I don't look at the the development of these kind of devices and the, these phones and these this the, the internet as just accidental creations, but there are something that are being created in, in a DARPA lab, something that are being slowly uh, let out to the public and to, on a commercial basis in order to form this the development of this technotronic state so that that we're, we're going towards you know so yeah, i don't think it's that, accidental but it's it's just clearly designed it, it it can only be by design when you examine the lives of the men that are the movers and shakers of it they're all members of secret societies they all go to bohemian grove they're all buddies they're all friends and so when you have that, obviously, it's a design. It's a, it's a design of the papacy because the most brilliant men in the world are the Jesuits. Nobody goes through education like they do. I have a friend now that's put me in contact with an 80-year-old Jesuit. He said that we run all the schools. We run all the major institutions, not just the Jesuit universities. He said, who do you think is on the board of these institutions? They run it all. If you run education, you run everything. There's nothing you don't control. Army, uh, science, the arts, uh, you name it, economy, military. So they run it all. Mm -hmm. And they're the most brilliant men in the world, and hence they have, through their various means of assassination, intimidation, gotten control of everything with their money, their credit of the Federal Reserve run by the Pope. And hence it's their country. Hence it's their world. And they run it pursuing to their interests. Absolutely. It's just that. Simple. And you know what? The Reformation brought all this out. The people of the Protestant Reformation knew the power of the papacy. They knew the power of the Inquisition for 1,600 years. For 600 years. They knew it killed 68 million people when it was finally done away with in 1808 by Napoleon. I mean, it was the, the people of Europe were fully aware of the power of the Jesuit order. And that's why they expelled them in all their countries in the 1800s. The Jesuits called it the century of disaster. If you read Campbell's work, uh, uh, Thomas Campbell on the Jesuits, we wrote it in 1931, he'll tell you that in there. But until people want to wake up and start naming names and, and secret society memberships subject to the Pope, nothing's going to change. Well, and that's why they always get away with it. As far as the force and the progression of these secret societies and that particular initiation, it, it goes back to the continuation of these, these ancient mystery schools. This, you know, so the progression of that, it's being inculcated over time and passed on generationally. So I think that it's fascinating that the, the Society of Jesus would be established to further these ends and become 
a, a phalanx of men who uh, who can't. I don't think they can really help themselves. It seems like that their mission is on autopilot. It seems like that it's set for. They're demon possessed, and that's how they accomplish everything that they do. So they have the power of Satan. Satan's foremost secret society in running his world system, because we know Second Corinthians four four is the god of this world. His foremost society in running is the Jesuit order. Everything flows from that. That's why they have black masses. That's why the high Jesuits are all Freemasons. Alberto Rivera said the Jesuit general Pedro Rupi was a Mason when he kissed the, the high official's rim at one of his black masses. They're all high-level Masons. Pius XII was a Freemason. Well, they they wrote the high degrees of Freemasonry <coughs> and the University of Claremont, or the, the College of Claremont in Paris, right? I mean, that's going that's back correct. a long ways. Correct. So they, they took the, the guilds and the the program of that brotherhood, and they made it into a high occult system of continuing their their quest to get a king that they wanted, or to control politics, to control the... The whole, the, the whole purpose for that was to restore the Stuarts on the throne. That's why they did it. That's why they call it Scottish Rite Freemasonry. So the, the, the Stuarts were ousted by the, the Glorious Revolution and by the William of Orange? That's right. Okay. Well, they were, yeah, they so were there, there's another act of God, if you want. I mean, it has to be. That's right. That's God stepping in and setting back the mystery of iniquity with the Puritans. And so that's why the Puritans are so hated. Everything you ever hear about a Puritan is always evil. And the classic work on the Puritans is written by Neil, and it's his works titled The Puritans. It's a three-volume set. You need to get it if you don't have it. You with me, Sean? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. So, I'm, so just, I'm looking at this entire arrangement. We left off here with June 6th, 1933. But I, what, what I really want to get to, at this point, how do we, how does America uh, deal with this situation in Washington, D.C., in the executive branch? I mean, it, we're not going to get someone in there to put all this back, you know, theoretically, That's to correct. put things back. That's correct. So, what do we do? I'll tell you what we do. First of all, you have to be saved. You have to know the Lord, and you have to have the Spirit of God indwelling in you, or all your efforts are vain, futile. You cannot resist the devil if he's your spiritual father. So you have to be saved. You have to truly believe Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again. Having truly repentance, and having a godly sorrow that works repentance and the salvation, not to be repented of. God's commanded all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. So repentance towards God and faith towards Christ. And believing in the gospel is what saves you. And now you have the power to resist these demon-possessed men. That is why the Reformation succeeded. That's why the Netherlands broke away. They became the first republic under William of Orange and his son, Prince Maurice. That's why you have Cromwell's Puritan Revolution resisting the tyranny of King George, the King Charles I, who was offered... If he, if he was simply promised to restore Magna Carta, Cromwell would have pardoned, had him pardoned. But oh no, he's working for the Jesuits, so you have Bible-believing, Cromwell's the greatest man in the last 300 years, without a question. So you have Bible-believing, born-again men, taking up the sword of just defense. Right. And that's what we have to do. That's what a Calvinist does. Forget about the five points. The most important thing about a Calvinist is they believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in the sovereignty of God, and he worketh all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, and that we take up the sword of just defense against the political tyranny. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. That's why we secured gun ownership with the Second Amendment. 
That's why the First Amendment is called the Baptist First Amendment. Yeah, Without it seems like Baptist everything Amendment. is laid out in those First Amendments, that the whole program of what must be protected and what must be established, what must be done, um, right, right there as far as freedom of speech and uh, the, the need to, it, to have true repentance to the Lord, like you said. I mean, I don't know how we could possibly, but how do you see it moving okay. forward as you, as you stand out? How did, how, what, what, what led the American Revolution? How did that happen? Go back to those events. Yeah, first of all, the persecution of the Baptists by King George III, because he was run by Jesuits. And then you have, with this persecution, you have the political oppression, like the Stamp Act and others. And then what you have is, you have the, in North Carolina, in Mecklenburg County, in 1775, mm -hmm. there were 22 white Remember, being white is important. I want you to know that. This is a warfare between white men. Wicked white men, the devil chose white men to rule his wicked system. And we have a superior intellect. We have superior abilities. And so therefore, the devil has used, has used men to be his greatest servants. They're white, not black. And so it's the same way with the Lord. The Lord has used white men to be his greatest servants. We're the ones that put the Bible in the language of the common man. It was white men that God used to get his word, his, his white language of Greek, into all the other languages of all the other peoples. And so white, being white is very important because we are the target of destruction because we were used to bring about the modern era. Mm -hmm. So don't, don't second-guess being white. Be thankful for it because you have a greater responsibility than all the blacks and all the Hispanics and all the Asians. So therefore, what do these white men do? In Mecklenburg County, 22 thoroughgoing white Calvinists, they were Presbyterians, declared their independence from King George III. That's a year before the Declaration of Independence. So that's just, that that's that, just stating we're no longer going to be subject. It's a Declaration of Independence. Mecklenburg County was a sovereign nation. And in the Declaration of Independence, they drew upon the Mecklenburg Declaration. The phrase, uh, to this end we devote our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor, that's right from the Mecklenburg Declaration. And it wasn't just Jefferson who wrote the Declaration. There were five men involved. Don't let anybody tell you Jefferson wrote the Declaration. He may have held a pen, but he didn't write it. Mm -hmm. All of it. It was you have the great and godly Roger Sherman, who was a signer. He wrote, as you know, caveat against injustice, the injustice of paper money. He was the one who wrote, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. That comes from Roger Sherman. So, so you have five men writing the Declaration of Independence, and they're taking the Mecklenburg Declaration as an example. And now the, the Mecklenburg Declaration in North Carolina, that's going to be coming from Protestant. White Calvinist Protestants. Calvinists, okay. Gotcha. Okay, that's like the only Calvinists issue Declaration of Independence. No atheists do it. No Armenians do it. The only ones who do it are Puritan Calvinists because they're ready to take up the sword. The moment you take, you declare your declaration, you better have your guns ready to go because they're going to attack you and they're going to want to kill you, exactly as the British did. So. When we have our Declaration of Independence, the man who leads in the signing of the Declaration of Independence was John Witherspoon. And don't let F. Tupper Saucy try to tell you it was Lorenzo Ritchie. That F. Tupper Saucy was a filthy Jesuit. Mm -hmm. 
So, so John Witherspoon is the one who stands up in Philadelphia and says, man, the time is not right, it's rotten. And anybody who doesn't affix their signature to this document is unworthy of the title of Freeman. And you can read this in a book titled The Chaplains and Clergy of the Revolution by J.T. Headley. Well, that's another issue that we're facing as we're moving forward in this kind of American Revolution 2.0 is that we don't have this clergy and we don't have these uh, firebrand churchmen who are preaching this independence and freedom and liberty that they had at that time. Now we have something quite different in the pulpits across America. I'm just, I'm seeing that these are individuals who are just, like you said, they're becoming Romanized, they're handing out uh, communion cups with grape juice and, and and wafers and they, you know and they have the christmas tree and they, and they don't have any power and they don't have any way to inspire the the american people towards this need to um to defend american liberty and uh, and so that's that's my concern yeah well remember, well remember this sean before that ever happened there was the great awakening right and I had Bowser on my radio station. He was probably the foremost authority on the four great awakenings in this country. Mm-hmm. And you had a great awakening. And that primarily came from the preaching of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. But, but anyway, go back to Jonathan Edwards. Yep. Jonathan Edwards was a, a sinner in the hands of an, of an angry God, and he preached it in a monotone. And the people were hanging on the rafters, and fearing, fearing the, that they would fall into hell. I mean, they had a genuine repentance over sin. And I'll tell you, at that time, there was all kinds of sin going on in the colonies. Sexual sin, all sorts of stuff. And uh, and so when these two guys the Lord used to raise them up, there there were huge confessions of sin and sorrow. And as a result, then, of course, there was salvation, and they began to be uh, resisting the French tyranny, and then ultimately the English tyranny. But it was first a great awakening. Without a great awakening, there is no such thing as constitutional liberty because the Constitution springs from white Protestants, not Roman Catholics. There was not one Roman Catholic who signed it except Charles Carroll. He was the only one, and he was not a participant in the congressional uh, constitutional debates in Philadelphia. It is an exclusive white Protestant Calvinistic King James Bible-based document. Well, it seems like that America came into being, like we discussed before, right at that time when the Jesuit order was was facing their their ex- extinguishment um, there in 1773, and then when things kind of come, came back online by 1813 or 1814, about around that time, and the Jesuit order is reinstituted. You said it was Pius the Tenth. Uh, Pius the Seventh reinstituted them and brings them back uh, into yeah. being or officially, and yeah. um, at that point, it seems like that everything kicks into being. We're going to go into the Holy Alliance. We're going to go into yeah. the Secret Treaty of Verona. We're going to start yeah. to attack uh, with full power the uh, all the extension of political liberty that came out of the Protestant Reformation. That's right. And everything kind of World War One, World War Two, everything kind of goes. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm, at this point, I wonder if we're going to get a new Great Awakening. I, I think I pray, I, I, and I'll begin to pray more earnestly for that. But I well, think I without pre- it, we I don't. preach hard about it. I preach hard against sin, brother, and I call me sin, sin, and I name names, and that's exactly what these guys did. And the other thing these guys were known for, they weren't afraid to die. 
And I've kind of become the same way now. You want to kill me, that suits me just fine. In other words, the Lord's done with me. But it's going to take fearless preaching, fearless preaching in the pulpit, not being afraid of anyone or anything. And that's how these guys were. They were called the the uh, the uh, Black Robe Militia by King George III. And King George III said, to, My God, the colonies have run off with a Presbyterian preacher. <laughs> That was John Witherspoon. Right. Yeah. Incredible. So that's yeah. really going to be, the, the, yeah, without that, I mean, we're, at this point, I fear what's coming down the pike here with these these vaccinations. It looks like the Army is developing one. It looks like they're pushing so hard. There's not that many places in America where uh, there's a lot of states that are totally shut down, uh, where, you know, if you're not essential, like, the, the economies are, are being driven into the ground. And so this policy is ultimately, I'm in Florida, so we're blessed right now to have, for whatever reason, a, a governor who is is protecting your ability to just kind of be separated from it all. But if you look in Australia and Austria and Germany, all around the world, this global, this is a powerful tidal wave of political energy that's, that's uh, enforcing this kind of global program. And uh, they're going to vaccinate the populace to death and depopulate us. I, I mean, it's coming hard. I mean, I don't know how else to do uh, okay, okay, it. Okay, well, just think about this. If the nice Templars killed from one-third to one-half of the European population in the 1300s with the plague, then the new Knights Templars, the Jesuit order, can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, I said, and by the way, the Black Death was a precursor to the Reformation. Wow. <laughs> well, so so we might be having that first before a great awakening. Well, it's interesting that you were pointing out how the Jesuits were masters of, of education, and it looks like that they've they've been very advanced in their scientific knowledge for a very long time and they protected that so that they didn't just let it out um, to everyone else. I mean, even when they, um, when Francis Xavier went to China, they were able to impress the emperor there with their ability to predict uh, uh, solar events or, or, or lunar eclipses and things like that, which is... Adam Shaw was a big one in that, that's right. So that's pretty advanced. Uh, even then, even at that time, we're talking about the 16, 1700s. I'm, I'm wondering how how do you uh, predict when the next lunar eclipse is going to happen? I, I can't do it myself, but obviously their their whole purpose is to gain a knowledge as power and to to use that to run the world. And they, they make it their their doctrine and their their uh, prerogative to run the world. So yeah, well that that's what Loyola said in his deathbed. I give you the world. That's what he said to his top Jesuits, his assistants. I give you the world. Because that, that's their purpose, is to conquer the world. Now remember, they know true science. And they give us false science. Right. So, this is interesting. Um, now, the, the situation with the vaccine, how, what is your position on it? Do you think that that's something that uh, is a good idea for people to take? or Never. Never. It's got it's got uh, baby uh, genetic material in it. I would call them stem fetuses. cells, or yeah, I know they. Yes, okay. Dog, dogs and cats have fetuses. People have babies, so they kill these little babies, and they take, particularly the white babies, and they use their genetic material in these injections. So it makes you a cannibal. 
Yeah. When you get their stuff, you, you're now going into cannibalism, and that attracts demonic activity towards you. Well, it looks like the, the practices at the, in the CCP there in China, that they're looking to get uh, organs, uh, uh, baby organs, that are still uh, have blood flow and are basically like hearts and different and, and, and different eyes and different different organs in the body that are viable to be grown and transplanted and and so I guess in China they don't have any restrictions whatsoever on just absolutely uh, butchering up the the different. Well, no, because China is a total Jesuit dictatorship. Mao was put in power in 1949 by the State Department, run by Francis Cardinal Spellman. China is totally run by the Jesuits. It's the perfect Jesuit state. So whatever you see them do, that's what the Jesuits are doing unrestrained. Why do you think this government give them all the technology? Chinese, they couldn't invade a wheelbarrow. This filthy military government gave them all our high technology. You're either you're the rat with Bill Clinton. Well, they, they did the same thing with Stalin with Lend-Lease. And I, same, you know. same exact thing, brother, with Lend-Lease. Give, give Stalin $11.2 billion dollars supplies, built the entire red war machine to decimate the Protestant Germans in Prussia and East Germany. Gang raped the white German women so bad that 8 million of them were gang raped. They had 100,000 episiotomies after they ripped that muscle between the vagina and the rectum. The savage uh, Russian savages were all encouraged in all this by the Jesuits who ran the military. Sukhoff and all those and the, the purpose of that, if you look, was ultimately they bring in the the Bolshevik, <laughs> they bring in the, the different agitators from New York City to get involved when the, the Tsar is, is experiencing the revolution there, and they're going to take over there in 1907 to 1917, and the professional New York agitators will come in like... Uh, uh, the well, they're Jews! Right. They're going to use New York Jews. They bring 300 New York Jews over from New York so they can blame the Bolshevik Revolution on the Jews. When the big leader of it was Bishop Ropp, R-O-P-P. He was a Jesuit. And you can read about him in a book titled Descent in the Darkness by James Zatko that he wrote in 1965. Descent in the Darkness. Professor James Zatko. Yeah. James J. Zatko wrote Descent in the Darkness. And he'll tell you that Stalin... And the Bolsheviks, they readmitted the Jesuits back into Russia in 1922 after they'd been expelled for 102 years, beginning with Tsar Alexander I. Right. And that's why they poisoned Tsar Alexander I in 1825. And that's interesting. Was he the same Tsar that would be involved when he would put his ships around the United States during the Civil War? No, um, that, that's Alexander, Alexander II. II. The second, that's right. That's his grandson. And Alexander II wanted to emancipate the serfs. He was going to give, put it in a constitution. He was going to do away with the secret police, the Okrana. Well, they blew his legs off. They killed him with a bomb. So so he was uh, an enemy of the Jesuits. And then they blamed the Jews for killing Tsar Alexander II with his son Alexander III. And Alexander III starts a huge Jewish pogrom and, uh, in Russia, blaming mm -hmm. the Jews for the death of his father. Wow. So this anti-Semitism and propaganda and like the 17th and 18th century conspiracy theories about the Jews were really propaganda tools that were being that were coming out of the Vatican to, and this is going to be before we get to the to Hitler and the, and the Holocaust. I mean, it seems like that yeah. the Vatican yeah. has been focused on persecuting the Jews for a long time. That's their policy. They always persecute. There's always a major Jewish persecution every generation. 
Well, another fact you want to tuck away is that, according to Leo Lehman, who wrote Behind the Dictators, this was a Roman Catholic priest who got saved, and he also became an evangelist of the Catholics in New York City. Leo Lehman said that the Jesuits wrote the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, and they patterned it after a previous work called the called the, the elders of the, the, the works of the elders of the Board Fontaine. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. In France, so so the Jesuits wrote the protocols, and everything in the protocols is true. There's nothing a forgery about them. It's all true. But it's what's not true is the Jesuits are behind. The Jews are behind it, not the Jesuits. And even in the protocols, the Jews say the only ones who who uh, the alleged Jews say the only ones who could could compete with us were the Jesuits. It says right there in the protocols. Right. And as far as talking about the, these inoculations of Protocol 19, it tells you that we will inoculate the Goyim, the nations, with diseases. And that's what the Jesuits have said. So now you trace that, what the Jesuits wrote in Protocol 19 to Fauci, and then and, and, uh, that other wicked sinner, the AIDS, uh, the bogus AIDS epidemic, what was his name, and that Malta Italian guy uh, working with Fauci. You lose me right now. Right. But it's all from the Jesuit order. All these filthy, mandatory vaccinations is part of their quest to weaken and destroy Western civilization. Well, I pray against it, and I hope that we can work hard to get the message out and to help the people of America to find out what's happening before it's too late. And there is a terrible and horrifying conspiracy that's going on. There, that just That's right. And if anybody denies it, you say, I believe what President Kennedy said. Have you ever heard his great speech when he talks about a huge monolithic conspiracy? Yes. Or do you think Kennedy was crazy? Do you think that had anything to do with his death? Yeah, no, no, I think he told the truth. He's the only president of the 20th century that ever told the truth, and he was a Catholic to boot. So do you think that ultimately he just had seen enough of it in his whole life that he, he couldn't stomach it and he, he felt like he had, was it a conscience thing that he had to stand against it? Uh, what, what was that about? I mean, most, by all rights, he should have just been another FDR and just. Yeah, yeah. I understand that he was saved in January of 63. And that's when he began to turn. And that's when. Uh, the Lord touched his heart. The Lord touched his heart, and that's when he uh, said, if the Jesuits, if they're going to kill me, they can kill me in church. And that's in a book called, uh, four, three volume set, four volume set called Forgive My Grief. I'll have to write that one down, too. Forgive My Grief. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, well, brother, um, it, this is a, I hope we will do this again very soon, and we'll continue this on. And you've sure. given us a whole hour plus tonight, and I really appreciate that. And uh, I'll just I'll let you get back to your evening. And I thank you again for all the time you spend with us to just help us get our heads screwed on straight on what's going on here. It's my pleasure, uh, Sean. Lord bless, and also Lord bless your listeners. Yeah, thank you, sir. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, 
There is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, 
as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent.